accidentally do two sentences. Gonna have to cut one of those. No. Yeah. Okay, semicolon. <laughs> I've taught you well. Hello, hello, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Hello, hello. And today we're doing another one of our creative writing segments, and I'm really excited because Gareth has posted some photos up on our Facebook and also our website, thepleasureofthetext.com. And do you want to describe a bit more about what you're planning on doing with us today, Gareth? I would, Shannon. I would indeed. Um, so basically, uh, I had a plan um, to, to do some uh, descriptive writing. Um, but then we interviewed Cheryl Sullivan and during the course of the interview, uh, we, we spoke briefly about the forensic photography from the 1930s, uh, or indeed 1920s, um, in Sydney and the Sydney Living Museum, which is where all that great, um, photography is housed. Uh, and you know, it's a good thing when you're a writer to follow the flow of associations. You don't want to be, you know, really dogmatic and just do what you set out to do. So what we've done is we've, we've decided to have a look at that archive or, in, or what we have shared of it, um, as a writing exercise in text, in textual portraiture. So that's what we're going to be doing. What do you think of that, Shannon? Textual portraiture. Try saying that 10 times. Textual portraiture. Got it. Third shot. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Oh, fine, whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, have you ever done anything like that before? No, I haven't. Well, you know, I don't know if it comes up a lot in uh, creative writing classes, um, but uh, it definitely comes up in art classes, uh, not the textual bit, but the portraiture and the whole sort of sketching concept. Um, and it's something, I, I think what we're going to discover as we work our way through uh, various exercises over the coming months is that there's quite a lot of really good knowledge that's housed in other art forms that can be applied to writing. Um, and that's something that, to my, in my experience, is, is, is not something that tends to be a part of writing classes, but it sure as heck is going to be part of what we do. Um, so yeah, I think basically this is going to be a shorter podcast, I suspect for various reasons. Um, but I think really we should jump straight into our first exercise. We're going to do two, uh, six minute exercises. The reason why they're going to be six minute exercises is because we have six images. So regardless of whether you're following this on, on YouTube or, uh, across one of our listening platforms, what I would recommend is that you pop over to the pleasure of the text.com head over to blogs and you will find mug shots of Sydney in the 1920s. I think I got that right. Um, if you open that page up, you will find that within that blog post, there are six images, six mug shots. And what we're going to do um, over the next six minutes, and we'll, we'll put in some chimes or something to indicate each time a minute passes, um, we're going to describe what we see in those mug shots. 
So, you know, you could imagine that you're a detective, I guess, um, and you're describing a perp. These are all perps. Um, and so you're basically describing their appearance. You have a minute to do it. How does that sound? Shannon, what do you think? So I have one minute to describe one perp. Exactly. You got a minute, whatever you think is worth describing. And then you go through all six images. Um, and as I say, we'll put a chime in or, or something to say, go to the next image. Now it's really important that you don't cheat. You may be halfway through a sentence too bad, baby. You got to move on. That's, that's how we roll here because imagine, you know, uh, you're trying to describe these six perps. They're all in the same room and they're just moving out and you got to move on to the next one. You know, life doesn't wait for the writer. So as soon as your minute hits, move to the next image. All right, Shannon. So have you got the blog post in front of you? Yes, I do. And, um, are you happy for me to start the one minute timer? I certainly am. Yes. I think that's going to be great. I've got my, my blue pen and my notepad, and I assume you're using your computer. As a yeah, I am. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think we're ready to roll. Yep. Okay. I'm pressing start in three, two, and one. Go.
And we're back six minutes later. How did you find that exercise, Shannon? Um, the first one was a little bit stressful because I was like, how could I describe this in one minute? But then once they got used to it, it flowed really naturally. And I don't think I needed the full minute to kind of pick the features that I wanted to describe. That's really good. I, uh, I'm coming off the back of some wicked insomnia and I found all six incredibly stressful um, and difficult. So it'll be interesting to see what we got, uh, relatively speaking. Should we? Um, do each one in turn. Uh, now, who was our first yeah, sure. subject? I can't remember. Mr. No. Uh, let's, Mr. Sidney Kelly. Right. So what did you get for him? Uh, okay. So Sidney Kelly, two lines across his forehead, the ones that made people believe in the flat earth theory, bushy brows, a dimpled chin, hair askew as if he just has, as if he's just arisen from bed. Very nice. Um, I got uh, a hangdog expression, short man, big hair, cigarette in his left hand, tall hat, trying to seem tall, but only making himself look shorter. Oh, I like that one. Uh, now, our next person is E.A. Cavendish. E.A.R. Cavendish. I'll go first for this one. We'll take it in turns. So I got a heavy set man, middle-aged in a long coat, small mustache makes his face look fatter. Left side of his body dips down as if from a mild stroke. Oh, I think we've both picked up on the dipping face. Mm -hmm. So a lopsided upside down smile with the right lip extending far beyond the face's natural symmetry. His head also lops to the side like a weight has been attached to his cheek and his face stretched outwards to the left. Very nice. Very nice indeed. Uh, now the first of our ladies, um, I'm going to have to rely on you to give me the names every time. Yeah. Demort. Demort. I think it's short for Dorothy Mort. Dorothy Mort. That's a very, um, I guess I'm picking up on Mort, uh, being, a a word for death. Um, yeah. I wonder if she was indeed a murderess, perhaps so. have no idea, but let's, I, I now assume that she is based on her name. Nomin nominative determinism. Uh, that's what we're going with. So what did you get? A long nose and drawn haggard face, long and cylinder, no smile, so no lips needed. How can one smile in jail? Her face is as limp as the bow that adorns her blouse. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so I got um, fairly similar. Thin, almost emaciated woman, careworn but possibly younger than she looks. Long, drawn-out features. Even her collar uh, drops down from her narrow shoulders. Oh, very similar. And I do recall thinking, oh, I must talk about the bow, but then the, uh, the timer went off and I was foiled. <laughs> foiled by the timer. So our next portrait is Jay Wilson. Jay Wilson. So this is me up first. Now I struggled with Jay Wilson. Um, I found myself looking at it for too long. Um, I didn't put this in my writing, but she reminds me tremendously in the longer shot of a ghost. I thought she was quite ghost-like. Um, 
However, I didn't write that down. What I got was uh, a gypsy-like appearance, a young woman in a fur stole, uh, dresses old for her age, though I suspect that's actually just the uh, fashion of the time, dark circles under her eyes. That's all I got. I really bombed out on that one. What did you get, Shannon? Mm. I also had difficulty with uh, Miss J. Wilson. I don't know. She's got, there's nothing quite distinguishing, but she is very distinguishable, if that makes sense. Mm, so, it does. It's, it's all the features together, isn't it? Yeah. So you can't just yeah. pick one. Um, so blurred lines, a woman hiding from her to see in shadows and a long fur coat, dark eyes with darker brows, a strong nose and jawline to carry the weight. Mm, that's great. Um, now we have our interesting one. The, um, for people who are wondering, uh, what's occurring in that image, or at least I assume what's occurring in that image is that I think, um, the gentleman's name is Mr. Chong. Um, and he clearly does not wish to be photographed. And back in the, those days, they had quite long exposures. So you had to sit still. Um, and he was not having a bar of that. So he may not have been moving his head very much, but the effect you get is quite striking, I think. Mm, it kind of looks like what I imagine a, an exorcism would look like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've all seen those movies where characters' heads move far too quickly and you get that kind of blurring effect. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we've got a bit of this, but how do you describe it? How did you describe it, Shannon? A shadow face, a mirage, double lips, double eyes, a long nose, ears with no clearness, and hands that hold the moving mass in place before it rises to the sky like a balloon never to be seen again. Mm, wow, that's really good. Um, mine's a bit more prosaic. I've got hands on either side of his head trying to hold him still long enough for the long exposure photograph. A young man, Asian, and a dapper dresser. Oh, he is a dapper dresser, actually. He's a very dapper dresser, and I feel this could be a key to his character and perhaps his unwillingness to be photographed. I feel there's something in that, but who's to say what that is? And that leaves our last subject. Yes, Mr. Walter Smith. What did you have In many ways, he's my favorite. He was the first of the faces that really jumped out at me. Um, so I'll, I'll read what I've got. Uh, looks like a boxer. Lots of scar tissue around his nose and brow. A dimple like a stab wound in his chin. Would almost be good looking, but somehow he's too lived in. He's too lived in? Yeah. I think I heard the timer go off and so oh, I, that was probably a better way of putting that, but I just had to get it down. He's too lived in. So what have you got? I do like too lived in. Um, so Walter Smith, burnt, scarred nose, the mess stretching beyond the obvious protrusion to the rest of his face, a small dimple in the chin, a sunken hole that seems to continue on through the skin, the flesh, into the mouth and down the esophagus. Eyes certain. Mm, wonderful. Okay. So, you know, those are some reasonable descriptions. I wonder how everyone went at home, um, probably mm -hmm. got similar sorts of things, but could we do better? I wonder. So, I mean, particularly with our fourth subject, I think we 
in trying to list some features ended up not capturing her at all. Uh, and so there's something in this, I would suggest, that um, we need to, when we're describing characters and when we're describing the appearance of characters, we need certain focuses or foci. Now, I'm going to share a quote from the following book, uh, David Lodge, The Practice of Writing. Um, people may be aware of David Lodge's work. He's a, quite a famous novelist, um, writes a lot of uh, fiction around the academic uh, sphere. I guess he's writing what he knows because he's also an academic, I believe. So you get a lot of academic fiction. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from a chapter in his book called Creative Writing, Can It, Should It Be Taught? Uh, mostly I'm reading it because I think it's interesting, but it also uh, ties into something else we're going to talk about. Okay, so here we go. How does one become a writer? One thing is certain, nobody ever wrote a book without having read at least one, and more probably hundreds, of approximately the same kind. I'll just interrupt myself at this point to say, I hope that's still true. Most writers, whether they take <laughs> courses in creative writing or not, <laughs> um, most writers, whether they take courses in creative writing or not, are kickstarted. That is, they begin by imitating and emulating the literature that gives them the biggest kicks. The pleasure and the enhanced sense of reality that you get from reading gives you the urge to try and produce that effect on others. And it is from reading that you acquire basic knowledge of the structural and rhetorical devices that belong to a particular genre or form of writing. To a large extent, this learning process is intuitive and unconscious, like learning the mother tongue. Three writers who I believe had a formative influence on me when I started to try and write prose fiction were James Joyce, Graham Greene, and Evelyn Waugh. No doubt the fact that all three were Catholics and wrote in very different ways about Catholic subjects was one reason why I was drawn to their work in late adolescence, for I was brought up in that faith myself. I also read them as a student of modern English literature with exams to pass and degrees to get. But from my immersion in their work, I absorbed many lessons about the techniques of fiction, some of which I did not put into practice until many years later. For example, from Green, how to use a few select details heightened by metaphor and simile to evoke character or the sense of place. From War, how to generate comedy by a combination of logic and surprise, of the familiar and the incongruous. From Joyce, how to make a modern story reenact, echo, or parody a mythical or literary precursor narrative. I learned many other things from these writers as well. Above all, I would like to think, a craftsmanlike approach to the business of writing, a willingness to take pains, a commitment to making the work as good as you can possibly make it. So I think that's a pretty great quote from uh, David Lodge. And I'll just highlight the, uh, the sentence that we're going to bounce off here, which is from Green, how to use a few selected details heightened by metaphor and simile to evoke character or the sense of place. 
So Graham Greene is noted for this. He's very much a writer of characters. It's something that he's, he's always done very well, and this has always been noted about his work. Uh, have you read much Graham Greene, Shannon? No, I haven't. In any of the English courses that I've done, I'm just thinking back to high school and then university and then creative writing courses, uh, Graham Greene never came up. We would mostly cover, you know, Australian authors. So Tim Winton's Dirt Music and Lockie Leonard kind of thing, um, which is upsetting. So I feel like my uh, breadth of other authors is quite limited, but it's ever expanding when I have these discussions with you, Gareth. Well, yeah, no, I don't think we covered Graham Greene when I was going through undergraduate classes either. Um, How did you discover him then? Oh, through my own research. It's, you know, you, um, I would say that I'm, I'm going to say something quite scandalous right now, but Ooh. we'll see if it, um, if it makes the cut. I don't think really I learned anything at an undergraduate level at university studying creative writing or rather I did go off. I do go, I did go on and do honors. Um, and that is strictly speaking undergraduate. And I started to learn some stuff at that point, but in my undergraduate degree proper, uh, no, I don't, I don't think I did really learn very much at all. And really, I mean, I've long held the view that what needs to be taught at schools, uh, is critical thinking more than anything else. Um, and then from that point, once critical thinking skills are in place and ingrained, uh, taking an, a, a sort of more elastic approach to curricula, I think would make a lot of sense. I'm not sure that the HSC testing sort of protocols are valuable at all. Um, uh, but I, I tend to think, uh, you know, if you establish critical thinking skills and allow students to pursue their natural interests and then take those natural interests and use them as focalizing devices for things that perhaps are not such natural interests. So for example, I would have done much better, I think, uh, or at least I would have engaged more with a subject like mathematics if the maths classes had been built around narratives. Oh, so controversial though. We'll probably get a, get a letter from the uh, Department of Education now. Cease and desist. How dare you? Oh, well, or they can come and ask us for advice because uh, Luke and I talk about the mathematics one. The good example is, you know, following that narrative, your planet is dying and you need to go find another planet. So then you kind of look at Goldilocks zones, how long it's going to take there, you know, travel, like all this stuff. So that also mathematics is not just mathematics anymore. It becomes physics as well. It becomes kind of chemistry. So you're weaving all these topics into each other. And when you do that, it solidifies all those interconnective pathways rather than everything always set up in our society, like individual silos. It needs to be more uh, cross-institutionalized. Oh, I so agree. I mean, you know, when they talk about STEM, which is what science, yeah. technology, engineering, and maths, I think. Yeah, right? that's correct. STEM. Yeah. I think, you know, if knowledge is a tree, the minute you start talking about stems, you've talked about something, you've cut off the tree. It's already dead. 
um, dead and dying. And I think it's a terrible focus. It's a silo and, and really, you know, um, imagination is so important in, in the realm of science and engineering. These things are not mutually exclusive. Um, there is stuff you could learn from the principles of engineering in crafting a novel. Exactly. And I mean, we talked about, uh, genres last week and, um, that's why I well we believe that you should read across all different genres. You shouldn't be siloed into just fantasy or horror because the interactions that you get from that, you're creating something completely different, a masterpiece, if you will. And um, yeah, literature should not be siloed either within itself. Absolutely. And there are advances in different genres, um, social advances and also craft advances. Uh, and because we silo to such an extent, we're so obsessed with genre, um, you, you actually get people who are not aware, writers who are not aware of what's happening in other spheres of writing. I, I just find staggering. I don't know how we got to that point, um, but it's definitely something that should be discouraged. People need to read widely. They need to be aware of the world in a, in a multiple uh, number of ways. Uh, it's very important. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly that's what, you know, hopefully we'll be doing a lot of that in these discussions. We'll be looking at writing from the point of view of this art form or that science. And so, yes, yeah. we, we don't want to be siloed. We, we want to be Renaissance people. Uh, yes, we do. We and can we safely segue from this onto back to Graham Greene? Do you want to have a shot of that? Let me see. How would we do that? Would you say he's a Renaissance man? I'm sure he's had opinions on Renaissance people, and that gets us back to Graham Greene. Uh, so, so Graham Greene had this amazing facility for description, and we've actually got uh, some quotes. Now, the way I, I went looking for these quotes, and the way I did it was I looked on my bookshelf and went, oh, there's two Graham Greene novels, pulled them down, opened them to the first page, looked for a character description, went, that's the one we'll use. So this is not a heavily curated selection. Um, but the first extract is from uh, Brighton Rock. And uh, Shannon's going to apply her dulcet tones to the reading of it. Yep, sure. So, yeah, like you said, this is from Brighton Rock. Hale knew before he had been in Brighton three hours that they meant to murder him. With his inky fingers and his bitten nails, his manner cynical and nervous, anybody could tell he didn't belong. Belong to the early summer sun, the cool wit sun wind off the sea, the holiday crowd. They came in by train from Victoria every five minutes, rocked down Queen's Road standing on the tops of the little local trams, stepped off in bewildered multitudes into fresh and glittering air. The new silver paint sparkled on the piers, the cream houses ran away into the west like a pale Victorian watercolour. A race in miniature motors, a band playing, flower gardens in bloom below the front, an aeroplane advertising something for the health in pale vanishing clouds across the sky. That's some beautiful writing um, and well read. What, what do you make of that passage? What do you see in there? Um, so... We're, we're describing Hale here mm-hmm. and um, there's not a lot about him, but from the sense of the passage, I get a good sense of his character. 
So, I mean, I know he bites his nails. That's the only physical aspect that I have and inky fingers. Inky fingers. So we only get a description of him, which is just the tips of his fingers. But it tells us a lot about him, inky fingers and bitten nails. Um, we have anxiety, we have nervousness, we have a certain kind of industry. He's a writer of some description or a publisher, you know, like this, there's, there's a reason for the ink. It's not just that he was reading the newspaper. Yeah. And also the sentence where it says anybody could tell he didn't belong. So, and then he describes the, the crowd that he doesn't belong to. Yeah, exactly. So what we're getting is a description of him, an inverted description. A description is in, in absence. We get a description of other people that are not Hale, and they are not Hale in a very profound way. So everything we find out about them, we, we can immediately go, Hale is nothing like that. So in actual fact, in, we've only got the tips of his fingers uh, as actual um, evidence. But the entire section is a description of Hale. And I think it's really interesting because you see a lot in modern writing and certainly amongst emerging writers, uh, a kind of an idea, and this applies to dialogue too, a sort of, a, a, again, a siloing. Okay, we're having a character description now. And so it's put apart and it's, you know, typically uh, you will often get things like hair color and eye color, possibly how attractive the person is. You will often get their age, but I often find I can't tell how old people are. Not really. Um, I think of people looking at this podcast or perhaps even might get from our voices that I'm a bit older than you are, Shannon, maybe. Uh, I think, I think if we, yeah, if they're looking at it, they'd be like, yeah, she's still got a youth and, and he's a wreck. I think they'd sort of make that sort of, uh, draw that sort of conclusion. So, so these things are not, you know, there, there is no bit of the text, which is the character description. The text is the text. And that, that's a really important idea. And if you read widely, and if you read, um, uh, fiction by writers who have read a lot of other, uh, writers work, you will notice that these things are not put off to the side. They're not in their own subcategory of character description time. Um, yeah. It's one of the reasons I think that writing software often has a section for characters where you can write what they're like. I do not recommend that to people. Let them develop on the page. If you must, cut and paste what develops on the page into your character description section, but don't write it there because it is part of the well, That's text. a really good idea. Yeah. It's, it's something to avoid basically. Yeah. Um, now with our pictures, our, uh, our, our pictures of, um, the forensic photographs, um, we could describe their hair and eyes, but we're not going to be able to talk about the colors because these are black and white photographs. Um, so that complicates matters, which is part of why I liked them for this exercise. So we've got that off the table. And I'll tell you another thing. A lot of these subjects are much older than they appear because they have had hard lives. And it can be quite surprising, actually, how there was one, there was one subject uh, who we didn't pick. 
And I would have guessed her age at being late 60s, early 70s, and she was 41. Yeah, so you mean they're much younger than they appear. Did I say it the wrong way around? This is where insomnia gets you. Thank God you're here. <laughs> yes, they, they are much younger than they appear. Um, and that even applies that there are some... Uh, it, I think it's interesting, actually, if you look at these photographs, and I, I'd recommend people go to the um, Sydney Living Museum website and have a look at these photographs. There seems to be an age around maybe 16, 17, where the subjects are recognizably their age. They hit around 18, 19, 20, and they age dramatically compared to what we would sort of be used to now. Uh, hard lives, really hard lives. Uh, so again, you know, it's interesting because when we use a descriptor like age, we think it means something. But in terms of these characters, if you were going to describe them because you know they're a certain age, it would not give you an accurate representation of how they look. And if you described them by how they look in terms of age, it would be misleading because they're much younger. So that's something else to think about. These are all pitfalls of the tropes of description, hair color, eye color, age, and how much you fancy them. That seems to be the four big ones that writers tend to focus on all to be yeah. avoided if possible. So, which brings us to our second extract, which I believe breaks one of these uh, bits of advice in two straight away. <laughs> this one's from yeah. um, The Third Man, which was made into a wonderful film, or in fact, I think it existed as a film before the book existed, with Orson Welles and uh, who else was in it? I really should research these things better, but it's a fantastic film. We'll do a blog post about it and about Graham Greene film adaptations generally, because there's some crackers. Yeah. Next extract. One never knows when the blow may fall. When I saw Rollo Martins first, I made this note on him for my security police files. In normal circumstances, a cheerful fool drinks too much and may cause a little trouble. Whenever a woman passes, raises his eyes and makes some comment, but I get the impression that really he'd rather not be bothered, has never grown up and perhaps that accounts for the way he worshipped Lyme. I wrote there that phrase in normal circumstances because I met him first at Harry Lyme's funeral. It was February and the grave diggers had been forced to use electric drills to open the frozen ground in Vienna's central cemetery. It was as if even nature were doing its best to reject Lyme, but we got him in at last and laid the earth back on him like bricks. He was vaulted in and Rollo Martins walked quickly away as though his long gangly legs wanted to break into a run and the tears of a boy ran down his 35 year old face. All right, that's great. So that's actually the, um, that's the beginning of the third man the very first uh, paragraph. What'd you make of that one? Well, we've, like you said, we've broken a rule. So we've mentioned his 35-year-old face. But in this paragraph, it's juxtaposed against, you know, the description of his long gangly legs and the tears of a boy running down his face. So it's it's really well done when, you, when he's added that feature in. Yeah, he's framed it. Uh, so it has a reason to be there. 
um, it's supporting the the description of the tears and and the description of Martin's as in some ways childlike. Um, so yeah, th that's a way to get someone's age in uh, without it simply being an arbitrary descriptor. There's a very good reason for it to be there. So Graham Green has made a fool of me again. Thank you, Graham. Uh, but yeah, seriously, it's it's these things should have a focus. I would I would suggest always whenever you describe a character, you're looking for some kind of frame through which to see them. Now, he's got a frame within a frame here. So he says, I made this note on him from my security police files. So what he's about to say is not his impression now. The implication of this is that it may have some value, but it's bound to be on a certain level incorrect. Uh, which I think is really interesting. So yes, in normal circumstances, a cheerful fall. I think we will find out that's not true. Drinks too much and may cause a little trouble. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, he has the stuff about um, the women and how he raises an eye, but there's an impression that he'd rather not be bothered. I think that's really interesting, and that gets developed as we go along. And he's never yeah, really grown up. Yeah, very interesting. Maybe we have the preface to how he looks, but it's also, well, not how he looks, how he presents himself. And then we get this second extract, which is only a few pages later. I just thought they were a really good contrast. A British subject can still travel if he is content to take with him only five English pounds, which he is forbidden to spend abroad. But if Rollo Martins had not received an invitation from Lyme of the International Refugee Office, he would not have been allowed to enter Austria, which counts still as occupied territory. Lyme had suggested that Martins write up the business of looking after the international refugees, and although it wasn't Martins' usual line, he had consented. It would give him a holiday, and he badly needed a holiday after the incident in Dublin and the other incident in Amsterdam. He always tried to dismiss women as incidents, things that simply happened to him without any will of his own, acts of God in the eyes of insurance agents. He had a haggard look when he arrived in Vienna and a habit of looking over his shoulder that for a time made him suspicious of him until I realized that he went in fear that one of say six people might turn up unexpectedly. He told me vaguely that he had been mixing his drinks. That was another way of putting it. So that's another great quote. What, what, what did you make of that one? I don't know how far along it comes in the first description of him being a cheerful and boy-like, uh, but here we have, you know, his haggard look, um, always looking over his shoulder, and, you know, he's mixing his drinks, which is another way of putting it. So we're getting a sense that he has some form of drinking problem, really. Hmm, definitely. And I mean, the thing is, you know, he's got these one of, say, six people who who may turn up unexpectedly and, and you know, do him a bother. Um, and so saying, attaching it to this idea of mixing your drinks shows just how problematic his drinking is. It's perilous to him in the same way. Um, there's also this idea that he is still not a responsible adult. 
um, to further concept of his uh, of his childishness. We have the women as incidents, things that happen to him. Yeah, I find I, that one quite uh, humorous. Yeah, it's kind of delightful, isn't it? Like I, I have this sense of Rollo Martins that he would be someone I would like but not want to be friends with. If that makes sense, um, yeah. Or someone you'd meet and go, "Oh, what a wonderful person to hang out and have a drink with." And then, after knowing him for a while, you'd be like, "Oh God, it's him." I sense that that is very much his character. But again, we have the 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 passage is really about him. It's about establishing his character. And again, the only two direct descriptions that I can see. Uh, his haggard look and a habit of looking over his shoulder. And you've got that sound, haggard, habit. And I think this, uh, I don't think that's unintentional. I think it's a, uh, it's a breathy, um, anxious sound. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's also meant to be there. As a, as a clear description of, of what he's like and the situation he's in. And of course the situation we're in often defines who we are. So yeah, I, I can see, I think, I don't know about you, but I agree with Lodge. I think Graham Greene is wonderful at building character and it's delightful the way he doesn't silo it into, you know, my paragraph describing my character time. So we've got a, a little bit of a basis and, and some examples of, of how it is possible to take a couple of details and and unravel them across a page that's clearly okay. not the word i was trying for but essentially we're, we're gonna what we want to do in the first instance now is find these couple of details so we did six descriptions and they're very worthy descriptions and we did our best but now what I want to do is I want to go back. Yeah, that's right, folks. I want you to go back to the blog, click on it again. Now get the hits up. It was all a scheme. And have a look at the blog post again. And we're going to spend another six minutes. And now this time, um, what we're going to do across each minute is write one sentence. Uh, this is going to be the uh, definitive sentence. You're going to leave a lot out, but what what you want to try and do here is capture the spirit of the image for you. It'll be different for everyone. There's no correct way of doing this. Um, but you want a sentence, it, you know, you don't want a sentence that goes down the whole page. This is, I'm talking about 25 words or less. In fact, I'm probably talking 12 words or less. Uh, see if you can come up with a word every five seconds and that'll get you through your minute. Uh, and then, so we'll do our six minutes and we will indicate, uh, each time it's time to move on to the next subject. Um, and then we'll have a look at what we got and, and see what we think. What, what do you say, Shannon? Does that sound all right? Yep. Sounds like a great plan. Okay. Starting the timer in three, two, one, go.
and we're back. Well, was How that different? that time? I felt uh, great that time because um, you, when you're when you're trying to, you know, narrow your focus, the focus is invariably your own, and so I, I, you know, began to insert myself into the situation, which you know, you know, they say write what you know. Uh, that's often actually not very good advice, but um, ultimately everything you write will be something you know, which is to yeah. say as soon as you imagine it and by the very fact of existing and having a consciousness, you're always intruding in your own writing, if you like. So yes, I, I, liked, I liked getting in there um, into the shots. How did you find it? It was more fun. Mm. I kind of, um, in some, I was the person writing and then others, I was the photographer and yeah, a lot more imaginative than just kind of picturing, uh, features and going from there. Yeah. So what we immediately have is that you're, you're approaching it from different frames, um, uh, and seeing through different lenses and, you know, again, you'll find in perhaps less thoughtful writing that there is no sense of a lens. It's just the text and the character description part of the text. So, um, yeah, there's something to be learnt from that potentially. Uh, but then again, what did we write? Maybe it's all just garbage. Shall we find out? Yeah, well, after you've used the word garbage, I want you to go first. And I feel that's entirely fair. So, yes, okay. Um, now, uh, it's Mr. Sidney Kelly, isn't it? Correct. All right. So, head down, he's hooded, a hoodlum in an oversized hat and big boy trousers. That was great. That's what I got for him. And obviously, a lot was left out. Yeah. Um, but for me, that captured what I got from him. So what did you get for Mr. Kelly? Looking up under his low hat, shadows cast across his eyes, Sidney contemplated the photographer. He wondered if he could pour in another cigarette for his good behavior and stance. Nice. That's great. So, so we brought in motivation and, and in a sense, he's, he's looking at us. Yeah. Oh gosh. This is a little bit creepy. Well, yeah, because you wouldn't want to mess with Kelly. He doesn't look like a guy you want to mess with. So, um, the next person is uh, EAR. Mr. Cavendish. Cavendish. What did you get for him? The wounded leg from the war had caused the left tilt to his frame, starting from his crooked hip, his left hanging, sloping shoulder, the drooping lip and cheek, and then the scooed hatch. Oh, that's really good. Um, mine's a little different and it's interesting because we've both crafted a little bit of story around him. His, 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 uh, description, um, actually carries a bit of story with it. So for you, you know, he was in the war for me, he, he was in, uh, a, a love affair. So what I've got here is, oh yeah, isn't it interesting? He's a standoffish fellow hiding his soft belly behind his right shoulder the left half of his body sloped as if once stepped on by someone he cared about. Oh, I like that one. 
Yeah, and I mean it's interesting, isn't it, that you you, you get. Uh, I like both descriptions. Uh, I don't know which one I like better, to be honest. Um, and they could both apply to him at different times if he was a character in a story. But there are certainly many, many different ways to frame a, a character description and a way to build it into the text. Yeah, and uh, this reminds me of when you go cafe watching and you watch the people, you make stories about them just by their appearances. And that's kind of what we're doing right now. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good process. It's, a, it's something that a writer can do anytime they want. You know, if you're at a really boring party and everyone asks you, you know, what you do for a living and you say writer and then they say, oh, you know, how many times have you been published or something like that? You can just think, okay, well, you know, now I'm going to describe you in my head. Now I'm going to kill you in my story. <laughs> right? Yeah. It gives, you a, it gives you a lot of power. Um, yeah. Okay. So now we're up to number three, Dorothy Mort. Now in, in my description, I have cut out almost everything about her. Um, so I've got her blouse slumped at the collar between her narrow shoulders and the weight of the bow around her neck. Oh. Um, mine is probably a bit more descriptive now of her appearance because it's just so prominent. Mm -hmm. um, so the longness permeated throughout her appearance, the long nose, the long shoulders, and the long drawn eyes. Not long now, though. Oh, not long until... The hanging noose. I don't know if they still had it back in 21. Now, isn't that interesting? Because that's what I was trying to imply with mine, the weight of the bow around her Oh, neck. really? Yeah. That yeah. she was stretched out. Uh, so we've mm. we've gone at it from two different angles, but it's interesting that for both of us, and I don't know, I mean, she could have been done for littering. Um, I think she, hers was a murder. Oh, was it? To be oh, okay, then. <laughs> Well, and littering. Who knows which was worse? Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I, to be honest with you, um, I didn't realize that was the case, but beyond the accident of her surname, I just really felt that that bow around her neck looked heavy. Uh, but it's interesting how, how you can come from two different angles towards the same conclusions. And again, yeah. I think uh, both descriptions give you a sense of her and her situation. So it's not just she looked yeah. like this, but there's a deeper character description going on. Should we move on to yeah. our uh, boogie, Jay boogie woman, Jay Wilson, see if we can do better? What have you got? The bottom of her dress looked like the curtain beside her that petitioned the photography room from the rest of the inmates. The dark circles under her eyes, I wonder if they are from those inmates, shoved into the dark, damp cells with their cries of innocence. Oh my. So she's she's quite a, uh, I suppose you framed her as more of a, a victim, perhaps. Yeah. And I mean, the only physical description here of her is her the dark circles under her eyes and maybe a bit of her dress. But Yeah. Um, well, that's really good. Uh, so I've come, I've, I've come at this from a very different angle. A ghost of white eyes glaring out from the shadowy circles beneath. The slit of a mouth there only to suggest this was still her face. Oh. 
was so sinister. Yeah, it was sinister. Well, I find, I mean, you know, again, she's probably a lovely person and I'm assuming they all got done for littering. But, you know, I something about her I, f I find quite haunting. Um, to be honest with you, I think she was one of your picks, I believe. Um, yeah. I wouldn't have picked her because she freaked me out too much. But there you go. <laughs> um, so this brings us to B. Chong. He bought his dapper clothes in spite of the attention it drew to him. A young man refusing to sit for his profile. There's a little bit of political subtext to that. I think I've got a little bit of political subtext too. Goodness me. All right, let's hear yours. They say photos steal the soul. He's thrashed about like he's very own dependent upon it. His migrant beliefs contrasting against his upper class dress. Hmm. Yeah. He he does. Um. I get the feeling he would have been a very smooth character, kind of like the Fonz, the Fonz of his time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, kind of in that, you know, the only description is upper class jacket. And, you know, we brought on the fact that he's a migrant, so he's, you know, Asian of some kind. Yeah, see, I didn't even, I didn't even mention uh, that part of his background. It was just uh, a young man. It's interesting, neither one of us really described the effect of the face being blurred. Mm. Um, that ceased to be of interest for whatever reason for both of us. And that's interesting, I think, because when you first look at the picture, it's absolutely the first thing you see. Um, but once you start narrowing your focus, sometimes you end up somewhere else entirely, you know, just at the, the inky tips of the fingers, as it were. Yeah. So we have one more to go, and I believe you read this one out first. This is uh, Mr. Smith. Okay. Mr. Walter Smith. The hole in his chin was almost a mirror into his soul. The empty hollow hole or the blackness of the charred stick that his father had beaten him with across the face when he was seven for stealing that woman's purse. Lovely. Yeah. Um, I really like his, he's, he's got an interesting face, doesn't he? And that dimple in the chin, um, which, you know, they always say men should aspire to have a dimple in their chin, but the, his is a wound. Um, yeah, it's so uh, depreciated into his chin. It looks abnormal. Yeah, yeah. He's a very interesting looking guy. He reminds me awfully of the actor Patrick McGowan, um, who uh, could really do Hangdog wonderfully well. He was a wonderful actor. Uh, big props to him. He was the first choice, I believe, to play James Bond back in the day before the role went to Sean Connery. He would have been a good pick. Um, although, of course, Sean Connery was masterful. So, getting back to uh, Walter Smith. This is, what I, this is what I came to. A welterweight, blown out around the middle. The scar tissue on his nose and brow had robbed him of more than the judges ever could. I like that. Yeah, uh, it immediately, for me, I started thinking about the story of a boxer who whose best days were behind him. So he was a good-looking welterweight, had been punched in the face too many times, lost too many decisions that perhaps he shouldn't have lost. And at some point, 
the battles in the ring became the battles in the legal system. And so that you have two kinds of judges, boxing judges and um, judicial judges. Judicial judges, that doesn't make any yeah. sense. Uh, court judges. Court yeah. Judges. Judicial judges. Goodness me. <laughs> Mr. Tautology. Um, yeah. So what we get from this, I think, in each case, whatever people may have thought of the actual descriptions and whether they feel we crafted anything good in the minute we had to do each one, is that um, there's the beginnings of stories in all of them. Um, and I would put to you that the color of a person's hair and their eye color and their age and how much you fancy them may not be the basis for a story. Uh, so, so it's very important when, when building character descriptions to be doing more than simply saying, this is what he looked like. This, you know, these were the clothes she was wearing. There's, there's more going on there, a lot more. Yeah, definitely. And so really today was an exercise at how to build character, characters beyond just the very basic descriptions that is so prolific in um, emerging writers' works and even published works as well. Yeah, exactly. And also to begin to talk about this idea that the text is the text. When, when you read a book, the text, the text of Shannon uh, becomes intertwined with the text of the book you're reading. And it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins. Likewise, everything within the printed text, it's a, it's a mass of tendrils of inky fingers that are all wrapped around each other. So there is no, uh, there is no action scene. There is no dialogue scene. There is no character description scene. It is the text. And these things are woven together, should be woven together. The more woven together they are, the more subtext, the more meaning, the more open they will be. Uh, and the, the greater the pleasure for the reader. And of course, we are very focused on the pleasure of the text here. So That's true. So I suppose in concluding, um, you've said like, it's not just dialogue. It's not just this, not just that. So really, uh, we think to develop your craft as a writer and even as a reader, remove the silos make it all interconnected. We've talked a lot about silos in education as well as literature. Remove the silos and make it all mean something because it all does. Yeah, exactly. And and for, when you mentioned for readers, um, you know, the the concept of a correct reading of, of trying, you know, of focusing on comprehension uh, rather than um, empathizing, imagining, uh, I would suggest that's a mistake that, uh, somewhere down the track, we'll talk about the concept that all reading is misreading anyway. Um, but, you know, your reading of a book and the way you read around it and the way you read through it and the way you read it, even after you've put it down, that is your reading. And it's got as much value as anyone else's. Uh, so not to be afraid of allowing yourself to be inside the book, because uh, that's, that's where all the joy of it is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, thank you so much for creating that exercise for us, Gareth. And um, I would really love to hear 
what other people have written in their six-minute segments. The before and after shots would be fantastic. Oh, yeah, so would I. Hard to see the contrast with. So head over to thepleasureofthetext.com to see the images if you haven't um, done the exercise yet. And also send it through to us as well at admin at thepleasureofthetext.com. And I could read it out at the next podcast that we do. Yeah. And I mean, even if you don't want to share it, if, if that's not something that you're comfortable with, send it to us. Let us know you don't want us to share it. And if you just want to see what we think, um, that would be fine as well. Uh, you know, yeah. um, really like we're just interested in, in, in hearing from our listeners and finding out what they're thinking and, you know, all feedback is good feedback. Um, if you take it the right way and, and we're keen for feedback. So, uh, feel free to drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've had a great day and I hope everyone has a great day and weekend as well. Yeah, me too. That was really good fun. And, uh, I can't wait till we do the next one, which will be something a bit along the lines of those cafe sketches you were talking about. We're going to take what we did today and we're going to animate it and see what happens. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Over and out then. All right. Catch you later.